0: In our last episode, we continued our examination of the state's closing, with Prosecutor Thomas Binger's arguments regarding Rittenhouse's recklessness as evinced by the damage caused by his semi-automatic rifle and by evidence that the defendant was a fraudulent and dangerous wannabe. Today, on our final installment covering Binger's Closing, we join him as he turns the juror's attention to Joseph Rosenbaum, asserting that while the decedent was engaged in illegal activity, his killing was completely unjustified.
1: That's all coming up right after the break. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Prosecutor
0: Thomas Binger begins the final portion of his closing by addressing the defense team's characterization of the first man killed by Kyle Rittenhouse, Joseph Rosenbaum. Joseph Rosenbaum. He's dead. So we don't
2: know what he was thinking. We don't know what was going on in his mind. That makes him an easy target for the defense today because they can stand up here and pile on him and destroy his reputation and he can't speak for himself. That happens a lot in homicide trials. Blame the victim who can't speak for themselves. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joseph Rosenbaum, and you've heard some testimony about him. He had been in the hospital, left it that day, had a clear plastic bag with his possessions, toiletries, a water bottle. We've all seen this. You get it in the hospital. It's pretty common. He's walking around like it's pretty much his only possession in the world. He visits Carrie Ann Swart, his girlfriend, and then happens to wander downtown into the middle of civil unrest. No indication he planned to be there. No indication he's part of any sort of movement. He just happens to stumble into it. So what does he do that night? Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road, and they tipped it over to stop some bearcats, and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. If he were alive today like Joshua Zeminski, I'd probably try and prosecute him for arson, but I can't because the defendant killed him. But that's the way we deal with people that do these things. When you commit arson, we prosecute you. We don't execute you in the street. And I'm not here to, to say that the things that jo- Joseph Rosenbaum did were good or that I condone that kind of behavior, not at all. But he didn't deserve to die for it. He can't kill someone for these things. He's five foot four, 150 pounds. Jason Lukowski characterized him as a babbling idiot. Lukowski says, I turned my back and walked away. This guy wasn't even a threat. I think we all know somebody like Joseph Rosenbaum, the Napoleon complex, the little guy who just wants to chatter. But when it comes down to it, it's all bark. It's no bite. It's like a little dog. Bark, 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 bark. But really, ain't going to do anything. There is no dispute in this record that at no point that night did Joseph Rosenbaum hurt anyone. Never had a gun. Never had a knife. Never had a bat, never had a club. And in the Drew Hernandez video, that fight at Ultimate Gas that we showed you, he's being shoved around by the crowd like a rag doll. And yeah, he's mouthing off, he's he's talking a lot, but he doesn't actually threaten anybody, doesn't actually hurt anybody. They're pushing him around like he's a tiny little person, which, frankly, he was.
0: Binger then prepares to show the jurors a clip from the Hernandez video.
2: And in the background of this video, you will hear somebody say, shoot your, you know, point your gun at me or something like that. That's Joseph Rosenbaum. He's upset because somebody pointed a gun and that triggers him, which is understandable. I think most of us would be triggered by that sort of thing. And that's what's upsetting to him. But he gets right in the face of people who have AR-15s never reaches for their guns, never rears back to punch anyone. You're going to watch this confrontation here at Ultimate Gas, and I want you to keep in mind that there's a group of people on one side with AR-15s and a group of people on the other side, and none of the people with the AR-15s feel their life is in danger. None of them shoot their
0: guns. They can handle themselves. The defendant can't. In the video, we see Rosenbaum walking briskly forward into a crowd of armed individuals. We hear a loud bang and Binger pauses the video.
2: That sound you heard was somebody throwing some sort of plastic thing at one of the stanchions underneath the, uh, the gas station. And it makes a sound that almost sounds like a gunshot. So add that into the mix. You've got people with guns, loud voices, clear hostility, and the sound of something that frankly to me sounds like a gunshot and yet everybody keeps their cool Nobody hurts anybody. Nobody fires a gun. And watch how they push Joseph Rosenbaum around like a rag doll.
0: As the video continues, we get glimpses of Joseph Rosenbaum, including a moment where we see one of the armed individuals shove Rosenbaum, who moves backwards several feet and then moves forward again to retrieve his bag, which he is allowed to do. You've heard testimony that he tells people, shoot me,
2: asking them to shoot him. Curious how that's a threat to anyone else. He's triggered, as we saw in that video, by people pointing guns at other people, which is reasonable. Most people would feel that same way.
0: And then we get
2: to the crux of the defense this threat
0: that he supposedly
2: made to the defendant.
0: Finger then displays a slide that reads, There was no threat to kill. The Defense
2: would love to be able to play you a video of this threat. They would love for you to see it and hear it yourself. This is a night in which there are dozens of people out there, reporters and regular folks who are recording with their cell phones and with other cameras all night long. We have shown you a video of almost every minute of the defendant's night from multiple different angles, and yet, You have not been shown a single video with this threat. Nowhere. It's not out there. Ryan Balch testified, and we have his transcript. And what he says is there was an incident in which Dustin Collette had put out a dumpster fire and said something to the effect of fuck around and find out. And Balch steps in. And he has an exchange with the protesters. And he turns around and Rosenbaum is right there in front of my face yelling and screaming. And I tell him to back up. And he goes, you know what? If I catch any of you guys, blah, blah, blah. So that's the timing, according to Ryan Bolch.
1: Right after that dumpster fire. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.
0: binger next sets up the kriston harris rundown live video pointing out the absence of a verbal threat from rosenbaum during the entirety of the footage and that harris testified that he has no memory of such a threat before playing the video the prosecutor asserts
2: the defense desperately wants this because they've got to give you a reason why it's okay to kill joseph rosenbaum and this threat is critical to their case but it's not there Joseph Rosenbaum isn't even visible. Now I submit to you that even if there was a threat made, it's still not enough because Joseph Rosenbaum's unarmed and he can't kill him. But the defense has pinned a lot of their case on a threat that didn't happen
0: and they can't prove. It's not on video, it's not there. Finger then plays the rundown live clip. Afterwards, he offers the following assessment.
2: At no point in that video do you hear any threat that Joseph Rosenbaum makes. It's not there. Trust me. If the defense had it, they'd play it for you. Now they want you to believe that that threat is made, and they also want you to believe that it was something that the defendant took into account when he decided to kill Joseph Rosenbaum. One of the questions that occurs to me is, how would the defendant even know who that guy is? Because earlier in the night, Joseph Rosenbaum is wearing a red shirt and a blue bandana. But by the time he's killed, he's got no shirt on. He's got no blue bandana. This is someone the defendant has never even met before. He's one of hundreds of people in the crowd. And yet, we're expected to believe that in a split second, the defendant remembers this guy? I don't believe so.
0: Prosecutor Binger next shows the jury a slide that reads approximately 11.35 p.m. on 82520. He then offers a narrative for the defendant's decision-making as he chose to leave the 59th Street car source lot. The police have moved the protesters south of 60th Street.
2: They've tear gassed the crowd and there's no protesters left. 59th Street is no longer in any danger. Wasn't much danger to begin with. Wasn't anything left there to protect. But by this point, there's no more danger. As law enforcement comes through, you've heard this video where they tell the defendant and his group, we appreciate you and hand them out bottles of water. As long as you stay on that private property, yeah. No one is saying you don't have the right to stay on private property and protect private property. What people are saying, what the crowd is saying, is stay there don't go out looking for trouble. The defendant hears this message from the police and takes it the wrong way. He thinks, oh, well, now I'm junior policeman. I can go run around stopping crime. But I asked him and I asked some other witnesses, if the police are there on the scene and the protesters are gone, go home. Why are you still here? Shouldn't have been here in the first place. But why are you still sticking around? And interestingly enough, you know, one of the questions I've always had in the back of my mind is, what's the end game here? When is this crew going to be done and decide that it's time to leave? Well, right after the defendant kills Joseph Rowe's mom, kills Anthony Huber and comes back, they all flee like rats off a sinking ship. But it's boring at 59th Street. There's no protesters. There's no action. So the defendant decides about 11.35 p.m. to cross the police line and go looking for trouble. He knows at this point he's entering a hostile crowd. He's seen this crowd. He knows what they're like. That's why he has to yell friendly to them, because he knows they're not going to see him and think he's friendly. And he knows he's got to have Ryan Balch with him, some sort of buddy to protect him. And he's immediately confronted by that man with the yellow pants who says, you just pointed your gun at me. And the defendant says, yeah, I did. He admits that. Now, what's interesting to me is they want you to believe this never happened. They want you to believe this guy in the yellow pants made it up or is lying. But he's just standing there by the side of the road, minding his own business, when the defendant happens to walk up to him. Do you think he just sat there and thought, oh, I'm going to make up a lie about this guy on on the spur of the moment? Or did it really happen? And is it consistent with everything else you've seen about the defendant? Does he sound like the sort of guy who would point a gun at someone for standing on a car? is is the kind of guy that would threaten deadly force to protect property. Because that's what happened. The man in the yellow pants says it happened, the defendant agrees, and then he comes into the trial and says, oh, I I was being sarcastic, like he's a little 17-year-old, and he wants to get out of it. Shortly after that, the defendant loses track of his protector, Ryan Balch. So now he's in a position where he knows that he's surrounded by people that consider him a threat. He knows that he's not supposed to go anywhere without Ryan Balch. He knows he's supposed to go back to 59th Street. And he does. He tries. He walks up to the police line. He says, I work there. That's my business, which isn't true, but whatever. And they won't let him through. Now, Ryan Balch makes it on through shortly thereafter. But the defendant gives up. He could go one block in either direction and make it back easily if he wants to. But he stops and decides, you know what, I'm going to stay here and... Maybe see what's going to happen. So then he talks to these people with fire extinguishers, and he's going to go down to 63rd Street, and he asks one of them to come along, and they say no. Now, at this point, he doesn't have Ryan Bulch. He knows he's supposed to go back. He knows he's supposed to have a buddy, and yet he decides to go it alone. He decides to run down to 63rd Street or walk down to 63rd Street. Doesn't even know if that other group is still there. Doesn't even know if he's really needed, but he can't wait to take this opportunity to go down and confront people because he thinks he's some sort of cop, some sort of law enforcement agent, some sort of junior cadet who's out there with a, with the a responsibility to fight crime. Nobody asked him to do that. Nobody gave him the right. Nobody deputized him. Ryan Balch says, the police told me the crowds are going to push him down by you. You're going to deal with them. The Bearcats hand out water and tell him he's appreciated as he's crossing the police line, they warn him about people throwing rocks. What is the message the defendant takes from all of this? The wrong message. Oh, well, now I've got the power. I've got the gun. I'm going to go confront these bad guys. I'm going to my, stick my nose in things. So what does he do when he gets down to 63rd Street? The first thing he does, we showed it to you at the very beginning, that drone video, grabs that gun and points it at someone to protect property points it at the Zaminskys. because why? Because they're, what, about to mess with some sort of fire? They're not threatening anyone's lives. He doesn't need to protect anyone. He doesn't need to protect himself. He's pointing a gun because he thinks he needs to protect property. He says he wants to put out a fire, but the first thing he does is drop the fire extinguisher on the ground. His AR-15 isn't going to put out a fire. So why is he really there? And we all agree... You can't use or threaten deadly force to protect someone else's property.
0: Prosecutor Binger wraps up his closing argument by seeking to frame for the jurors how they should approach their duties as deliberating jurors in this trial. You are here to decide whether
2: or not his actions are legally justified, not to buy pathetic excuses that might be given to you. As a teacher, when a student says to you, the dog ate my homework, that's an excuse. It doesn't get you out of the homework assignment. If you panic in a situation that is not reasonable, that is an excuse, it is not a legal justification. If you're 17, if you don't have training or experience, if you put yourself in a situation where you're in over your head, if you're scared, those are excuses. Those are not legal justifications to kill. They do not erase your personal responsibility for your own actions. The court has read to you the instructions in this case. They lay out the law that you should apply. That reading took a long time, and I understand there was a lot to digest. And one of the things that you will have the opportunity to do when you go back and deliberate is read through those instructions yourselves. I get that listening to them doesn't always make it clear. But I encourage you to focus on some things when you consider the defendant's behavior in this case. You are told that criminal, re- criminally reckless conduct is conduct that threatens other people's lives and poses an unreasonable and substantial risk to other people. There is no dispute the defendant's activities here threatened other people's lives. He took two lives. You know, this is not like a normal murder case. A lot of murder cases were in here trying to convince a jury that the defendant killed somebody. That's not in dispute here. That's the easy part. The question is does he get a pass? Do we think that's okay? Do we think what he did was right? That's the question you have to answer. And when you consider whether his conduct was criminally reckless, consider did it pose an unreasonable and substantial threat to the safety of others? Count four. Charges him with first degree intentional homicide of Anthony Huber. There is no doubt that the defendant intended to kill Anthony Huber or committed conduct that he knew was practically certain to kill Anthony Huber. That gun was pointed at Anthony Huber's lower left rib cage, and the defendant deliberately pulled the trigger. That was no accident. And when you do that with an AR-15 against someone's body, it is practically certain to kill. We all know this case comes down to self-defense. But there's a high bar for using deadly force in a self-defense situation. The law says that the defendant may intentionally use force, which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm, only if the defendant reasonably believed that the force was necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself. So did Joseph Rosenbaum pose an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm to the defendant? No way. Did Anthony Huber pose an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm to the defendant? Absolutely not. Did Jump Kick Man or Gage Grosskreutz? No. None of these people posed an imminent threat to the defendant's life or to cause great bodily harm. The standard when you make this decision is what a person of ordinary intelligence and prudence would have believed in the defendant's position under the circumstances that existed at the time of the alleged offense. The reasonableness of the defendant's beliefs must be determined from the standpoint of the defendant at the time of the defendant's acts and not from the viewpoint of the jury now. So put yourself in the defendant's position. Would you have done the same thing? Would a reasonable person have done the same thing? Would you have engaged in the reckless conduct that led to this course of events? Would you have gone out after curfew with an AR-15 looking for trouble? Would you have aimed at other people? Would you have tried to use the gun to protect an empty car lot? No reasonable person would have done these things. The court has also instructed you on provocation. You cannot hide behind self-defense if you provoked the incident. If you created the danger, you forfeit the right to self-defense. By bringing that gun, aiming it at people, threatening people's lives, the defendant provoked everything. And if he does that, he has to exhaust all reasonable means to avoid a confrontation. All reasonable means. So if Joseph Rosenbaum's running at him, Joseph Rosenbaum is no threat. His life, and not only is the defendant expected to run, he's expected to yell, push, shove that rag doll around, run back for help, call 911, call for help, do all sorts of other things besides just turn and fire four shots as Joseph Rosenbaum falls helpless to the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no doubt in this case, that the defendant committed these crimes. He committed a first-degree reckless homicide against Joseph Rosenbaum. He put Richie McGinnis's life in jeopardy. He put Jump Kick Man's life in jeopardy. He intended to kill Anthony Huber, and he attempted to kill Gage Grosskreutz. All of those elements are true. The question is whether or not you you believe that his actions were legally justified. And I submit to you that no reasonable person would have done what the defendant did. And that makes your decision easy. He is guilty of all counts.
0: And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next installment as we begin our review of the defense's closing argument as delivered by Rittenhouse attorney Mark Richards. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Tarracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Tarracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty. The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.